This is a CNA podcast. Hey, Nick. Hey, Suling. Would you like to hear a joke? Okay. Okay, so here goes. A guy walks into a company, all prepared for his interview. He finally sits down. He goes for his interview. The recruiter asks, do you think you have what it takes to join our company? The guy says, I think I do. The recruiter goes, okay, to join our company, these are the qualifications that you need. First, you need to be honest. You need to be down to earth. You need to be able to take on multiple shifts. Mm-hmm. And most importantly, you need to be responsible. Do you think you have it? The candidate pauses, thinks for a while, and goes, Yeah, I, I think I do. According to my last company, every time something went wrong, they said, You are the one responsible for it. Take responsibility <laughs> for it. So I think I do. I am a responsible person. In 2020, Singapore saw one of the lowest ratios of job vacancies to unemployed people, fewer than six for every 10. For the new graduates who just entered the job market, it was clear that reality was not pulling punches. Ambitions were quickly scrapped and fear was real as the pandemic continued to evolve. But what about last year, 2021, Nick? Wasn't there an improvement in the job hunting scene? Well, yes and no. There were still stories of broken dreams and difficult job search among younger Singaporeans as the economy struggled to find its footing in a pandemic-forced new normal. Many were told they had to wait an indefinite period before they could get an answer on the job they applied for. So then how can graduates increase the chances of landing their dream job? What are some of the most common mistakes graduates make when applying for their first job? I'm Lin Suling, and you're listening to a special four-part series of Heart of the Matter, looking at issues close to the hearts of youths. And I'm Nicholas Sim, the co-host for today's special episode and a student majoring in communications and new media. Joining us today in the studio to share more on the issue of employment, we have Adrian Tan, a frequent commentator on CNA Digital, and Cheryl Sin, a recent geography graduate from the National University of Singapore. Cheryl, Adrian, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Just want to get this cracking by telling you about this very scientific Instagram poll that we did two days ago. We asked our CNA followers on Instagram what were the common mistakes that they made while job hunting. And over 4,300 responded. The top three answers were really interesting. Number one, not preparing for job interviews. Number two, not doing detailed research into the prospective company. And then the last one was sending out CVs without tailoring them. So maybe let's just get cracking into it sending out CVs without tailoring them. Adrian, start us off. Share your thoughts about what you've just heard. This has been a problem since time immemorial. Everyone (laughs) goes through the same thing. When I first started out in the career search, uh, it's it's also the same thing. I think it is quite common when people get a job interview opportunity. They tend to think, oh, I'm going to nail it. I'm not going to prepare. I'm just going to turn. I'm going to wing it. I'm going to get it. But most of the time, companies would also have a lot of different candidates, a lot of different job seekers to go through. When things become very hard to compare, when you have people of the same caliber, what are the things that would differentiate the two of them? And Mm. usually it will be the kind of attitude that you bring to the table, the kind of deep research, the kind of impression that it can make. So it's really trying to make that first great impression. And bearing in mind, it's usually the first impression that really people put a lot of weight onto. And for any job seekers that tend to go just a little bit beyond, just do a bit more research, to read the glass door, read some news about the company, all this could be pointers that employers may give to you. Yeah, but what about glass door is important research? There isn't it just a bunch of ex-employees talking about their bosses in a bad way? 
Let me share with you how we used to use Glassdoor as a headhunter when mm. I was still doing headhunting. When we want to look at companies or people that we want to poach from, we would usually also go to the Glassdoor of that company to see exactly what are the things that people are unhappy about. Mm. So for the company, the employer that I represent, I can go ahead to the candidate and tell them, hey, you know, the employer that is interested to talk to you, they don't have such problem. Mm. And usually the people that I speak with you be like, how do you know that we have such issue in the company? Because if a lot of people say the same thing, then usually it is going to be truth. Someone said, there's no uh, smoke without fire. Lah. So you, you want to look at all these telltale signs. So I think to some extent, Glassdoor is still quite useful to look at. But of course, don't put all your bets in one basket. Mm. You've really sort of given a very good introduction to why it's important to tailor your CV. We've also heard from one CNA follower who said, my biggest mistake was to distribute CVs like they were flyers. Meaning I just sent out as many as I could <laughs> to as many recruiters, headhunters, companies, sort of like a spray and pray approach. Because surely someone will call you back for sure, right? But why is that wrong? Is it not a safer strategy to do that? Because one, you spend less time and effort to tailor your CV. And also, if you spend so much time and effort tailoring your CV, you are sort of putting all your eggs in very few baskets. Cheryl, what has been your own experience like? Truth be told, I actually cast my net out very wide once I graduated from uni. And did actually, you tailor your CV? I did that mistake. I actually didn't tailor my CV. <laughs> oh no. So I actually sent out close to 20 applications out wide. Of the same CV? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I only tailored a few for the job applications that I really wanted to get. Mm. Um, as much as I casted my net out wide, I actually knew a general direction that I wanted to go to. So there were some that you were not very serious about and you knew it and you didn't want to spend too much effort in it, but you would just say, let me try and then I send out this generic CV. Is that it? Yes, okay. that's exactly it. <laughs> yeah, I rather wanted to just send out as many applications that I could rather than just send out like maybe 10 or fewer and then hoping that they would come back to me. But you know, if you get that drop that you send a generic CV to, you're not going to take it anyway, so why bother applying? I think it's more of like gaining experience in terms of if I get the interview and then how the interview goes. And then I will also get more exposure to what kind of company culture is there out there in other industries as well. So you sent 20. Yeah, close to 20. Hey Adrian, do you know what's the average number of CVs our Instagram followers say they sent out before they landed their first role? I had no idea. <laughs> 15 to 16. Is that normal? Is that high, low? I think again, it depends on the approach. As mentioned earlier on, if you take the spray and pray approach, usually you need to send out a lot more. And to what was asked earlier on, I think if you just take uh, perception as a recipient, just look at the kind of spam that comes into your mailbox, oh, no. your email box. Usually this kind of content, the ones that you instantly delete or even don't bother reading, those are the kind of stuff that are not customized to you. But if you imagine that a message customized to you, your name is in the subject title or mm. something related to you is mentioned in the body of the content. That would help you to relate to the message better and of course read through. So mm. likewise, when a job seeker apply or send in an application to a company, they will see it from the same lens. If it's something too generic, not tailored for the job, it is too one-size-fit-all, it is very much possible that they can see it through. And also bear in mind, recruiters see CVs every day. There are dedicated talent acquisition people that their main job is just to read CVs every single day. And every day, they could read up to 100 over CVs. So they're picking up your lack of genuine interest because they see a generic CV and they say, well, this person's not very serious anyway. I don't think they really try to spot that much of red flag because mm. there are just so many CVs to go through. Mm. Instead, they'll be spotting green flags. 
So they'll be seeing the right things that you have put inside. So they can quickly scan through, okay, this one clear, move on to the next one, move on to the next one, so on and so forth. And to put in all this kind of stuff, you really have to take into two considerations. One, what exactly is being mentioned in the job posting? And there are tools out there, companies such as JobScan, that actually scientifically help you to understand the kind of keywords that you have in your resume that is missing because you did not follow through and monitor what is mentioned in the job posting. So that's one thing. And the second thing is, of course, different companies have different culture. Did you embed essence of your alignment to that culture? So for example, if one of the company culture is innovation, are you mentioning about how innovative you are in your school project, in the past work that you have done, etc, etc? Because all this will be picked up as well. Let's see, now that you have a good CV, you've tailored it, you show that you know more about the company, that you sort of match what the company is looking for. What's next? One common advice that we've heard is to follow up after you've sent out your job application or in this case, your tailored CV. What's the best way to follow up with a recruiter or a company? Since, you know, you do not want to come across as either aggressive or worse, uninterested. And does it really demonstrate tenacity and some sort of a quality that gives you an advantage, no matter how small it is, so that you can stand out as a candidate in a good way? Do these small things matter? Joke, before you give us answer, let's hear what Cheryl did to follow up. Did you follow up after you sent out your 20 CVs? 20? I didn't follow up for 20 okay. emails. But I did follow up for a few, maybe 5 to 7 companies. But I don't think for the 5 to 7 companies itself, they did come back with me for a few interviews. But then again, I didn't feel like the company was a right fit as well for some okay, of but, the interviews. But would you say there was a difference? Like the companies that you followed up with, then they responded quicker or then yeah. maybe those that you didn't follow up with, then they sort of yeah, ghosted actually, you in that sense. Yeah, definitely. Like okay. following up might actually help. Which I think at that point of time, I didn't really realise. But, but it forces them to respond to yeah, you, right? As a human them. being. Yeah. Adrian, what do you think? How was the best way to follow up so it's not so weird and awkward? Because you, you're not sure, right, how aggressive you should be. Yep. Firstly, I think following up into this context can be quite challenging because if you notice, a lot of short applications that you put through are actually through a form. You don't mm. even know who is the recruiter at the back end. Unless, of course, you go and do some CSI on LinkedIn and do some guesstimate on who that recruiter might be. To what you mentioned about following up, that is good practice. So what I would advise is go to, on LinkedIn, just mention that uh, you have submitted your CV, you're really interested to show that you really put this company as a top priority if that is the case. But having said that, recruiter also have to fulfill the KPI given by the hiring manager, which means they have to find a good fit. Mm. So assuming that you do not have the expertise, you do not have the skill sets that they're looking for, no amount of follow-up would help you with that issue. So it, it still take a bit of balance on the kind of substance that you have. And of course, going through to speak with the recruiter to tell them, hey, you know, I've done something. A more useful method would really be to identify if you have any soft connections in that company oh. and get those soft connections to help you make a referral. Because there have been studies shown that employee referral actually is the main source of good hire. And because if someone within a company dare to stick their name on you, it says a lot. Because nobody would want to recommend their crazy neighbor into the company. With that, recruiters, hiring manager is more assured that, okay, this one must be quite okay. Let me talk to him or her. But what do you use to gauge whether you should reach out to someone in that company? Because sometimes those people are not people that you know for a long time. It could be, say, this fella in secondary school who I haven't seen for 20 over years. Am I really going to reach out to him and how do I crouch it such that I don't seem desperate? 
to your point, I guess it also depends on how much you really want the job. How I would usually advise, and I was doing career coaching last time, is I would advise you approach these people and tell them, hey, you know, I, I'm actually looking for something within your industry, did some research, I've just realized that you happen to be in it. Can I buy you coffee and get some career advice from you? Instead of going straight and ask, can I get a job? Mm. Uh, can you make a recommendation? Because that is too much of a hard sell and people would just treat you like, oh, you, you want to sell me insurance, is it? You want to take a more softer approach. And usually people who are at quite a stable career, you will also realize psychologically, everyone loves to give advice. Everyone loves yes. to be that guru that people come to for <laughs> advice. So if you were to just be a bit humble, take the humble pie, can I get your advice, please? I think you'll show their ego and of course they'll try to help you. Yeah, you might learn something about the company as well, right? right. Mm. Just to go back to what you said just now, you said rather than to prioritize following up on a company, it's more important to showcase your strengths on your CV. So this was also another common advice that we heard, which was to know your strengths so that you know when you tailor a CV, you can bring out what's your best traits and then also you can slay all the interviews. But at the same time, it also sounds a bit generic. Maybe Cheryl, could you break it down for us? How did you apply that in your efforts when you were trying to land your first job? In my CV-wise, only for the ones that I tailored for the company, like what Adrian said, I actually tried to look through like the job description and try to put in all the keywords that they have mentioned as well. One of the difficulties that maybe fresh grads do experience when they're trying to put out their CVs out there is translating the experience or the skills that you've learned in university, like through projects or maybe through your CCA, into some form of relevant experience that you can showcase to employers. Personally, that was what I struggled with when I was trying to develop my CV properly. But what I did was basically try to pick out the keywords of job descriptions and try to match it with whatever experience that I had, whether it was through CCA, through clubs, or through like uh, university projects that I've been on. So how would you showcase that in your CV? I don't know like specifically like the phrases, but um, what I will do is, let's say I was in cross-country team. Because I have an athletic background, I will actually amplify like the soft skills that I've had, like discipline to turn up for trainings and some form of resilience and whatnot. On this note, right, another thing that I sort of realised that my generation, me and Cheryl's generation, that we, we have oh. in common, oh, not to, to draw a line <laughs> here, but what we've noticed is that there's this trend now, it's called like, side hustles, right? To really get as many side hustles as you can. So that includes like what Cheryl mentioned, joining all the clubs or different CCAs, volunteering, doing projects, maybe even out of school actually. Yes, that can be seen as a strength, but also might sometimes suggest that, you know, you have so many things going on, you're just basically a jack of all trades, but a master of none. Would, yeah, could it work yeah, against you? Could it work against you, exactly. I think it depends on how you publicize yourself because mm. you can do all your side hustles quietly, but loudly just publicize one of them. Mm. So that would help you to drive a specific focus. And I'm very big into side hustles because side hustles basically got me my previous two jobs. And I basically did a lot of content, a lot of writing, and that basically led to a lot of publicity, a lot of uh, awareness. And that's how one thing leads to another. It is still a good thing to get those side hustles. And you don't even need to be that intentional. I never started out as being intentional about it, but it's things that you get along the way, the people you get to know, and most importantly, the skills and experience that you gain over time. But you know, when you talk about side hustles, right, it's sometimes it's not really about doing a lot of things and everything. It's maybe having a focus. Are you trying to build a brand? What's your thinking when you say you start a side hustle? What's your goal and your priorities and your objectives? It really depends on what is your intent behind it. For some people, side hustle is basically just a way to make ends meet. 
maybe on the side, I go and drive Grab, lah. I go and do some web design work or I help people balance their books, do some bookkeeping. So those are things that you can do just to get money in. But if you want to be a bit more intentional to build up your brand, then of course you have to go into a specific direction. Like for myself, when I started writing, I actually wrote so many different stuff. I started writing on entrepreneurship, recruitment, career management, even to one extent, even parenting. <laughs> <laughs> then I realized, oh, my website too roja already. I then started to spin off. And slowly, one by one, I started to can it. And eventually, I kept at HR technology. And again, mm-hmm. it wasn't also intentional because I was looking at HR tech and entrepreneurship. Someone told me, oh, you know, it'd be great if I have your asset on the HR tech side. And it got me thinking, maybe entrepreneurship, I can drop it. There's definitely people who can write a lot more in that domain. Mm-hmm. And I chose HR tech because if you go onto Google and search HR tech back then, I think I can score page one number one very easily which I did at one point in time things just snowball from there right so, knowing the, the landscape and therefore what your strengths are yes and over time people see me as the go-to expert for all HR tech stuff and mm. things just build on from there so I again did not start out intentional it's just a, an area for me to express my interest in writing but over time you can try to figure out how do I then try to connect the other dots what about the flip side of the coin you know your strengths you know how to connect the dots what about your weaknesses So this is another interesting topic. And I've heard career advisors say that you should try to clean up your online presence, especially when it comes to like maybe maybe LinkedIn, I guess. You know, like just now you mentioned, use LinkedIn, do some sort of uh, stalking, try to connect with new employers. But how do you clean up your online presence? Like how do you remove your internet footprint without making you feel like you're not being who you are? Yeah, did you have to do that, Cheryl? (laughs) I didn't really create my LinkedIn until I was halfway through uni. And I realised that it's quite important for getting internships and also like for future job references. I've only started to professionally put in all my profiles and experiences on LinkedIn in year three to year four of university. Actually, I'm also quite curious like how uh, important it is to have the professional preference online. Yeah. But would you say you're very, very cautious when it comes to posting on LinkedIn? Mm, like compared I think to, so. I guess, you know, Instagram and stuff. Yeah, yeah I think okay. so. I, I've, I've not posted anything on LinkedIn until maybe I joined MPEG and then I had to help the company. Hey, but I think people would also look at your Instagram, no? Not just LinkedIn. So you also might want to be careful about your Instagram, though. Did you have to curate anything? Not really. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's a mistake, but I didn't really uh, take note of <laughs> no, maybe my Instagram profile. Yeah, well, too late already. She's already employed. Oh, too late. <laughs> people can find. La, because usually when it comes to your Instagram handle, it's always some weird funny names. So people <laughs> yes. won't be able to yes. correlate. My Instagram name is not my name. <laughs> oh, okay. But did you have any advice, Adrian, on like, do we really have to scrub out our online presence and curate all these things? I have seen firsthand that recruiter, the first thing that they do after having a sense that you are an okay candidate, they will go to Facebook, they will go to LinkedIn to do some informal CSI. What are they looking for? I Honestly, I'm not really sure because what can you really tell? I mean, so what if you have a drunk photo on Facebook? That doesn't represent much. And of course, people nowadays won't be so stupid to do that. They just want to get a better sense of you as a person on the things that you've said, the things that you've done. I think it's really, again, trying to identify red flags. Mm. So, for example, if they go to your Facebook and you happen to make some stupid comment on, you know, maybe some racist stuff or whatever, then obviously the employer wants to stay away from you as far as possible. But again, into this context, well, firstly, younger generation, they don't use Facebook anymore. (laughs) It's very hard for anyone to identify who you are on Instagram. Uh, LinkedIn, of course, is different because in LinkedIn, you have to use a true persona. And mm. But then because of that, people would be a bit more cautious, like you mentioned, Cheryl, on LinkedIn to post things that they would think through. Lah. 
they will make sure to put on their fake news filter and all that just to ensure that the, the things that they put out will not get flame or anything like that. To a large extent, it really doesn't work that much in today's context because people are already aware of all these things happening. So one area of concern that people always wonder whether they should flag out on their CV or try to beautify it a little bit is gap years. During my time, when people did take gap years, it was kind of frowned upon and people thought that why are you going away and doing your own thing? It suggests that your own priorities might be more important than any other organisation that you might join after. Um, and it's something they struggle with when they have a gap year in their CV as well. So how would you advise people position themselves when they do have that gap year? How do they talk about it to the recruiter? Because it'll definitely come up, right? Did you experience that, Cheryl? Did your friends have gap years? I have a friend currently going to take a gap year. Mm. And I think right now she's not worried about how it's going to turn out. Closer to when she starts applying, she might have to start thinking about how to pose it as a strength of hers. Right, it doesn't stop yeah. anyone from taking a gap year. It doesn't. I don't think it does, yeah. So how, Adrian? Unfortunately, in Singapore context, I've seen many instances where employers will frown upon gap year hmm. or for any kind of gaps. And it may not even be from a young uh, job seeker. I've seen cases where, of course, people are unemployed for a long period of time. And I've also seen mothers who quit because the son taking PSLE that year. Hmm. So just want to be full-time tuition teacher. And when they try to make the entrance back into the workforce, it was very tough. I remember speaking to a banking headhunter and he was telling me, oh, my customer would not want to see any candidate that has been unemployed for more than three months. I'm like, why? Oh, well, it's just they, they insist. They, they feel that anything more than three months, you are rusty. Air quotes, rusty. It is very illogical, in my opinion. The good thing I would say right now is because of our shrinking population, you don't really have that much <laughs> supply of talent. Employers can continue to be so stubborn and so silly, but over time they realize they don't really have a choice. For job seekers, it is of course important for you to state that you do have a gap year and also more crucially to put in exactly what you have learned during that period. Of course, if your learning is, oh, I've learned how to uh, really score on Fortnite, then you may have to think through, la, you know, clearly what else can you write, la, you know, not just about, oh, I know how to flip to the right channel on Netflix in one second kind of stuff. Something tangible, something that could be useful for you because the narrative is really up to you to control. I'm curious because gap years doesn't really mean that you're a slacker, you're going around doing nothing. Sometimes it means important priorities are being taken care of, like you mentioned, whether it's parenting, whether it's taking time off to do some volunteer work. And that person should be seen as someone who has a sense of who they are, what they want, a good sense of balance and priorities, shouldn't a gap year be a plus? It depends on how enlightened the employers are or the hiring managers are. As we move along, we have, of course, younger and younger hiring managers who are more enlightened. They are more okay with things like remote work and all that and this kind of arrangements. And more concerned of the fact that, actually, you know, I'm not expecting my employee to be with me for life. Then they'll be much open to all this kind of scenario, especially if they themselves, imagine your friend, if he or she happens to become a hiring manager in the future. He or she has taken gap year before. Mm. For her to look at someone who has also taken a gap year is nothing. In fact, they will have much thing. more things to relate to. Mm. So I guess we can expect a shift, basically, so that in, in the future, this might actually be the new normal. That's interesting to hear. Another mistake that we've heard was not preparing enough for interviews. Now with Google and everything, you can easily find mock questions online. It's so easy to find them. What are your biggest strengths, weaknesses, your leadership qualities and, and stuff like that. But 
is that enough? Like just going online, searching for the generic interview questions. Actually, Cheryl, you mentioned that you applied for so many different jobs and those were actually training for you because every interview you went for was sort of like a training. Was that effective? Towards the end of me applying for all the applications and the job interviews one by one, I sort of developed a template for myself mm. on like the common questions that each mm. recruiters would actually ask and then I would build on that the last few interviews that I've been on I would actually tailor it towards what they are seeking for of an employee out of me but you can't do that for scenario based questions though that's specific to the company and role that's the surprise questions and I can only get as ready as I can which would then be actually researching on what the organisation does or what the company does and then also trying to tease out like my interviewer's profile if they have on LinkedIn, Facebook or whatever that I can get. Hmm, what's the best way to prepare, you think, Adrian, for interviews? People say they're not prepared enough, so what is the right way to do it? Besides interview questions, you even have platforms nowadays that can help you conduct a mock interview. Hmm. In fact, you can even pay people to interview you. I've seen a website, I can't remember the name, but it's specific for software developers. So you can pay other more senior software developers, maybe CTO, VPIT, to pretend to be the interviewer and to go through the interview with you. That's how high stake it is uh, for them. So those are things that you can do. But uh, to what you mentioned earlier on, of course, you want to make sure that you cover all grounds when it comes to the standard questions. Just now, we were talking about strength. Now, uh, what do you think is a good way to answer what is your strength? Uh, to me, you don't even need to answer because if I were to do it, I would beforehand go and take a strength finder test. Mm. You have companies like Clifton, 20 bucks, US dollar. If you want free one, you go to Red Bull Wing Finder, also strength test. So if I'm the candidate, I will tell you, oh, my strength, uh, this is what Clifton said. Oh, that Top makes five strength. Sense. Yeah, because there's no way you can dispute that. If you were to dispute that, you're disputing Clifton. You're not disputing me. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that would really help you to score one. For scenario-based, in today's context, for the more enlightened companies, a lot of scenario questions would be given to you as an assignment. Because in an actual workplace, nobody expects you, hey, tell me the answer now, 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 now. No one says that anymore. Of course there People is. will tell you, well, maybe, maybe for your line of business. But for many cases, I've seen, okay, uh, this is our problem statement. You all have three days, one week to come back with a proposal, with a presentation, so on and so forth. Most companies should do that. For companies that doesn't, they expect you to give an answer on the spot. To me, a lot of all these instances is really trying to think of the answers that they're expecting. As I used to tell people, you don't list down the answers given in the textbook. You list down the answer that your lecturer wants to see because he ultimately will be marking your paper. So it, what do you think they want to see from this instance? If they would ask you, oh, can you relate to me a stressful environment, someone in your team slacking, but you still have to chase up on the project. So basically, what are they trying to find out? They're trying to find out how do you manage the situation, your interpersonal skills, mm. and still at the same time, try to meet company objective. End of the day, it's all about company objective with the least amount of damage. So those are the things that you just have to take note of. Yeah, I know a friend who once told me that she receives a scenario-based question, something like you said, it was a task that she had to complete. The only issue was she was not given a deadline. And when she asked, how much time do I have? The interviewer responded, you decide. And that feels kind of intimidating. How would you recommend my friend to go through that process? Firstly, for all this kind of interesting interview scenario, I dare say in most instances, if you go glass door, you can find. La. Because most people, whenever they go through some interesting or some mm. not normal interview scenario, people will put on the glass door. I'm assuming that this company is you know, somewhat well-known. Then you can find out, of course, what people have done before. And, oh, I've, I submitted in two weeks, submitted in one week, average it out. Oh, okay, so it's one week. Then maybe to impress them, I submit in five days. Mm. I do it less than one week. 
So those are the kind of benchmark you want to have. It's like when you go in for a salary negotiation. If you have no benchmark, oh. no anchor, you do not know what is your net worth. Instead, you can go to payscale.com, you can go to salarybot.com, MOM also have some information. I think all the university also has this employee graduate survey thing. Then you have some benchmark. Then you can go in with information on your back. Okay, this is how much I want. You need those kind of benchmark and anchor wherever you can find. And the good thing about all this take-home scenario thing is you can go back and quickly Google Mm. for your answers. So since you're jumping ahead of us already, we do want to ask you about what advice you have for graduates seeking to negotiate pay. It doesn't really come up in the job interview at the very end and there's an offer on the table. How should they go about doing it? Because it can be a really awkward exercise. I imagine this is your first job. There is nothing to benchmark yourself against. What did you do, Cheryl? Did you negotiate your salary? So fun fact is that I'm about to go into conversion then I will have to start negotiating my pay. So I'm actually curious about what does Adrian have to say. All right. (laughs) As mentioned, of course, try to do as much homework as you can. And second of all, you have to take into consideration all the other non-monetary salary. You have things like your benefits, your annual leave, your medical coverage, etc., etc. Because they can pay you a very good salary, but then tell you, oh, your annual leave seven days you probably would not want to entertain that as well. So you have to look at the full package. Uh, And also bearing in mind, your salary will grow over time. Your entrance salary may be this amount, but over time, it can go up. What is that opportunity? Is there transparency on how I can achieve it? Would it take me one year of solid performance to hit the next tier? Mm. Or do I need to do 10 years before I can move on to the next tier? So all this will also be material. And the next thing is when it comes to crunch time, when you have a sense, okay, I'm the candidate, they want to offer me, and they have this thing on the table. One trick that you can try to pull off is think of something that you really want, but you have to put it across to them. Okay, if you can give me X, I will sign immediately. So that will also give them the motivation. Okay, let me quickly talk to the hiring manager. Can we give her X or not? If you can give her X, immediately sign. For any recruiter, any hiring manager, every single day without that person with that vacancy to entertain is actually another day of stress. Mm. Yeah, another day, everyone have to double up, triple head to do all the necessary work. So the faster they can close, the better. If you can give them that timeline, okay, give me X, I will immediately sign. I'll start tomorrow. That will motivate them to really go all out and try to pull all the strings and make it work for you. Okay, but there's also this argument that, you know, if you're a fresh graduate, first of all, you don't really have a lot of experience on the table. And now in this situation where it's so difficult to find a job, do you really have what it takes to ask, to even negotiate? Because some people might say, you're already so lucky to have a job. Why do you still want to negotiate your pay? Yeah, Just what if there are like other people as well, right? Yeah. Who are other candidates and then they think you're being fussy. Could that risk arise? That risk definitely will arise. But I also want to point out if you can reach the salary negotiation stage, they definitely see something in you. Mm. So that is your opportunity to make the call if you want to. So, of course, you don't just go in on the first interview in your email. Oh, I want this amount already. That is not the right time. Just before you go into salary negotiation, of course, a lot of people, they have a lot of job applications and they might actually receive more than one offer. What's your advice to people who have maybe one or two, three, four offers on the table and they're trying to decide which one to pick up? Because some CNA followers on Instagram tell us they regret rushing into their first job. Either they grabbed the earliest deal or they went for a job that paid the most or not negotiating pay was a key regret as well. So what's your advice on how to go about choosing the right place, the right role? 
Great question. Before that, I personally would suggest you try to reach out to people within the company to do some informal reference check. I mean, for the longest time, reference check has always been one way. Company mm. do on candidate. But seriously, in today's context, it is very easy for a candidate to do on company. If a company insists on, oh, name me three happy past managers you work with, you should also, like rightfully, try to identify three happy candidates or job seekers or employees that's working for the company. It's because of a two-way street. Try to go to LinkedIn to find out if there's people who's working in the company or has worked in the company before. Again, using the same approach. Can you buy your coffee, get some time from you to get some advice from you? That's one. Now, the other thing when you have offers on the table to consider, don't compare A versus B. Compare what is after A versus what is after B. Because ultimately, your upcoming job is not going to be your final job. It's mm. just going to be a stepping stone for you to move into what's next. So I'll give you an example. I was previously in a HR tech company many years back. And I actually got an offer from a university to get into career services. So it's really very different. I, I was also quite uh, in a dilemma. I don't know what to do. So I reached out to a mentor of mine and he said, Adrian, don't compare this HR tech versus this university. Consider what's next for these two items. So I was thinking, okay, for HR Tech, if I continue, maybe I could potentially go into some other bigger cloud-based IT company like mm -hmm. Salesforce, etc. But if I go to career services, okay, after this uni, go to another uni. After that uni, go to another uni. That, that's about it. Law. It's musical chair. Law. So I decided to stick with the HR Tech company. Something along that line would be very useful because every stepping stone that you touch on would actually lead to an experience or some extra things that you can bring along to the next company. Mm. So for example, if you want to go into a big tech company, you will know for sure, oh, they want to see which are the previous startup that you have been working with. Do you have a Stanford degree, for example, etc.? Et do you have an MBA, those kind of stuff. So those are things that you have to slowly work towards. And for the experience that you gain at job, it's important to make sure that what you have here allow you to jump easily to the next thing. Did you have any similar experiences or insights in the, your course of uh, your journey, Cheryl, when you were applying for places? How did you know the role that you're in currently is the one? Um, was that too much pressure to place on the role? Based on my experience, I actually had sort of a dilemma as well. Um, when I was applying for all the job applications as well, I was considering going into teaching. So I applied to MOE as well as casting out my net to other industries and companies. And with a background that is also in the education sector, I thought it would be a good way to go into as well and then have a mentor of sorts in the teaching industry. Yeah, that's so different what you're doing now. Yeah, so it's very, very different to where I am now. And I think... What I did was I took a step back and I actually also consulted my dad on this. And he said, why don't you just take a step back and see exactly what you want to do out of a job. And to get more experience, let's say in other industries first, more so than going into the education sector. And then being a teacher like forever of sorts, right? And then going to different schools and then school after school after school versus you going out there into other industries. I actually wanted to explore more on the social sector side. And my dad said, if you go into teaching, you might not have this exposure and experience after. So after all this deliberation and like talking to my dad, I realised that maybe social sector is something that I want to go into to explore first. And then maybe further down the road, if I really want to be a teacher, I can actually apply after. With all that considerations in mind, I decided to just forego MOE and 
try to cast my net out wide into social sector organizations and companies. Right, so broaden your horizons, but talk to someone who's been in that sector, which yes. is, in this case happens to be your dad, who you trust as well. Yes. Oh, unfortunately. Exactly. Yeah. Now that we have, you know, established all the different ways that we can secure a job, talk to someone who's in the industry, tailor your CV. But what if, despite everything we've said today, we are still unable to secure a job? So maybe how should a fresh graduate deal with rejection? Cheryl, maybe you could share those few instances where you had to face those tough rejections. Yeah, it must yeah. not be easy because, you know, in school you get A's and whatnot, or you'll pass and you'll move on to the next level. But how do you deal with rejection? <laughs> I go into my room and cry. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, I'll be disappointed. But at the end of the day, it's more of like taking in the experience of like what you maybe you did wrong. Also, like maybe thanking the company as well for having that experience to go through the interview process as well. And then taking those learnings and then apply again. Just try again. I mean, like we're adults and then we're going to be working for the rest of our lives. So just take it as a learning experience and... Don't stress about like having to get a job within like two months of graduating and sort of stuff. Okay. Adrian, how would you recommend to deal with rejection? I guess also, how would you recommend, you know, to analyze one's performance? So let's say like Cheryl, after all her rejections, after she's she's done crying, she say, okay, maybe I should just analyze what I did wrong. How would you recommend her to do it? Before that, let me share a story. So after my first recruitment business, I actually wanted to get into the tech business because after dealing with salespeople for so many years, I'm so jaded of dealing with people. So I applied at LinkedIn, I applied at Hire.com, I didn't get the job. Uh, and that is when I was thinking of, maybe I can express my interest in technology through writing instead. And that's how things just compound since then. So there's always an opportunity even within rejection. But I think to what you mentioned, it's really good to take those feedback in a very constructive manner to identify what you think went wrong. And you will also be helpful if you can get a third pair of lens, someone from a neutral stance to help you see your friends, your family. Why do you think I did not get that? Uh, and look at perhaps do a bit of CSI to find out people who've gotten the job instead and see what is the clear difference. Mm. Yeah, sometimes it may not be that apparent, but sometimes it could be very clear, okay, all the people that join the company happens to come from maybe this school, this industry, this former company, maybe that is what I'm lacking. So realistically, should that be a path for me to take or should I just consider dropping it altogether? So those are some of the insights that you can gain. Maybe just to run off this podcast, if you both can give us your parting shots on your advice for any graduates who's on that journey of finding their first job, applying and not really getting anything in return, um, what's your advice to them? I think for graduates specifically, you do need to put in a bit of work to showcase your personality because you don't really have much experience to speak of. To be honest, everyone who come out from the university is like every soldier that come out from BMT. Every one of them look the same. So how do you oh, really differentiate? So you differentiate through other means, lah. Maybe your CCA, your like what you mentioned. You know, if you were to tell me you are very a persistent person, show to me that you're persistent. Or oh, I ran a ultra marathon. Uh, that, that one is a different level kind of persistence. So those are things that you have to showcase, so which, of course, unfortunately, in hindsight, then you realise, oh, no, then I shouldn't have been binge-watching or playing <laughs> games for, for the past decade of my life. I have no portfolio to build on. But having said that, it's never too late. And in today's context, it's so easy to build a portfolio. Go to YouTube, TikTok, and write something, become some influencer. It is so much possible, especially if you have the gumption and the interest to do all that. And for areas where you cannot TikTok your way through, you can always write about it. You can always become a content creator through your writing. Because right now, honestly, if you do already have those assets, you can always tell people, oh, you go to my website. My portfolio is there. 
versus someone that just sent in a resume, mm. the standard template that career services give to everybody. So those are ways that I think you can try to stand out amongst from the crowd. Any parting shots, Cheryl? Words of wisdom? To round it off, I guess, from my personal experience, just be confident in your own skills and experiences that you've learned through uni or like through your early life itself. And just believe in yourself. And there you have it. Are you making these same rookie mistakes in your search for your first job? Tell us what you like about this podcast on our Facebook, Instagram, or drop us an email at cnacommentary at mediacorp.com.sg. Tune in next week as this special four-part series continues. This has been Heart of the Matter with me, Nicholas Sim, Lin Suling, Crispina Robert, our podcast editor, and Aaron Lowe, our research writer. Signing off, till next time. <laughs>